This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Japan marks the 70th anniversary of the dropping by American forces of atomic bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we'll hear about the enduring impact of the only use of nuclear weapons in warfare ever. But we begin in the Spanish region of Catalonia, where Prime Minister Artur Mas this week called regional elections for September 27th. For the first time, Catalan pro-independence parties and civic groups will run on a joint platform, treating the election as a referendum on independence. And if they win, they plan to push ahead with a process that would see an independent Catalan state in existence in 2016 or 2017. The political establishment in Madrid maintains that any such route to independence is illegal, but can it be stopped? To discuss this, I'm joined now from Madrid by our correspondent, Guy Hedgeco. Guy, what exactly is this plan for a kind of quasi-referendum wrapped up in an election? Well, that's right. It's sort of an election plebiscite on, on independence. The, the, the plan that's been laid out is that on 20, the 27th of September, there will be this, uh, this election. Um, it will be for the, the Catalan Regional Parliament. And if the, uh, the political parties and civic groups which are running together on a, on a united ticket in favor of independence in this election, if they manage to get a, um, a majority of over half the seats in the Catalan uh, parliament, then they will feel that as a mandate to push ahead with the plan. So the day after that result, um, the 27th of September, they would declare a sort of um, declaration of intent in the parliament and say that now we are opening this process um, of breaking away from Spain. And that would take, as you say, between six and 18 months. Um, so it would involve creating, above all, creating a new Catalan uh, constitution, which would in turn be approved, they hope, um, via some kind of referendum. Uh, and therefore, by uh, 2017, at uh, the, uh, the latest, according to Catalan nationalists, they would have effectively their own state with its own constitution. They would also be creating uh, other states and mechanisms and bodies at the same time. Um, but the, the really key one there is the constitution. Now, this comes as uh, we've been getting the impression over the last few months that support for uh, Catalan independence appeared to be softening or even waning. That's right. I mean, in a way, the, sort of the, the height of sort of pro-independence feeling that we've seen in recent years came just before Christmas when Catalonia staged an informal referendum um, in November of last year. Um, it was a, a referendum that the Catalans wanted it to be a bit like the Scottish referendum last year. The central government blocked that and said, um, you know, that, that is uh, it's unconstitutional. You can't do it. Um, so what they're trying to do is... Um, what they've been trying to do is to maintain that momentum from that moment when pro-independence feeling was extremely high. But in recent months, it has dipped slightly. I mean, recent polls show that support for independence has been somewhere around 44, 45%. That's lower than it was, not much lower, but a bit lower than it was just before that, uh, or just around the time of that referendum in November. So there's been a sort of slide. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that 
perhaps people are just wondering if this is ever going to happen. It's been going on this, this, this process for two or three years now, um, this push for independence. And I think a lot of Catalans maybe are getting a little bit tired of the process of turning out into the, into the streets of Barcelona and other cities to demonstrate. And, and they're just wondering if they're going to see anything come of it. Um, but certainly, I think you know, this latest plan, the fact that there's a date on it, we've got these elections being treated as, as a plebiscite, and then uh, quite a concrete roadmap beyond that, that seems to perhaps give a bit of a boost to the, uh, the independence camp. Now, the electoral list uh, is made up not just of traditional professional politicians, but a couple of celebrity figures as well. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, it's very unusual, this electoral list, to have politicians on it um, as well as uh, civic uh, figures from grassroots um, groups as well. And then, as you say, you know, there there are some, some other sort of slightly unusual figures, such as Pep Guardiola, who is... You know, Catalan uh, soccer legends, the, the manager of Bayern Munich football club at the moment. Um, now, he, he's not running as he, he wouldn't be an elected member of the Catalan parliament were he uh, to win or were, were the list to win. Rather, he's there as a sort of as a symbol, really, of the, the, the broad appeal of the Catalan independence movement. That's what they're looking at there. But you know, even that uh, appointment of, of, of Pep Guardiola to the list was quite controversial. Foreign Minister uh, José Manuel García Margallo said that, well, if he's in favour of independence, what was he doing playing soccer for Spain all those years ago? He must have been playing just for the money. Um, so, you know, comments like that give you an idea as to how high sort of temperatures are running and how, how high the tensions are surrounding this whole issue. So the, uh, the, Spanish, the government in Madrid, they claim that all of this, any, kind, any such route to independence is against the law. It's, uh, there's no uh, mechanism of that kind within the Spanish constitution. And they've even been muttering, apparently, about using the Spanish constitution to uh, wreak havoc in Catalonia if this goes ahead. Well, that's right. I mean, there has been talk of the possible use by the central government of, I suppose, a kind of nuclear option, um, a sort of last resort, which is Clause 155 of the Spanish Constitution, which has never been used before. And this seems to be quite open to interpretation, I think, but because it's never been used before. But it, uh, what it says is, is that uh, any region, any of Spain's 17 regions, which are deemed to have been uh, violating the Constitution or violating the law, um, the central government can step in and uh, withdraw their powers or withdraw certain powers that they have. And we don't know exactly how many powers could be revoked by the central government, but clearly that's seen as quite an extreme, uh, an extreme mechanism for the central government to use. And a couple of ministers in the last few days have said, well, they've been asked about the possibility of using that, uh, that clause. And they said, well, you know, it hasn't been ruled out, put it that way. So um, there's been a lot of talk about that, and I think that reinforces the idea that the central government in Madrid is very much focused on handling this situation um, through legal means. It doesn't see it as a political problem. This is a legal problem. Um, And so it's going to respond to any push by the independence camp through legal means. So if this pro-independence list wins the elections, wins a majority, and goes ahead with this constitutional plan, at what stage can the central government intervene to attempt to stop it? Well, again, this is open to, to interpretation. We don't know exactly how, how the central government would respond. I think it depends 
probably in great part on which government is in power um, going, going forward. Because, I mean, the, the party that's in power at the moment, the Popular Party, is a Conservative Party. Um, it's probably expected to call a general election by the end of this year. Um, now, it, we don't know if it will win that election or not. Um, there's a good chance it could be unseated by um, possibly the, the, the opposition socialists. They can manage to get a coalition. Um, together. So we don't know who will be in, in power, for example, you know, from the beginning of next year. Um, and if it was a different party in power, for example, the socialists, perhaps in coalition with another sort of left-leaning party, I think we could see a, you know, a, a very different approach to all this, and which would be more sort of softly, softly, um, maybe not stepping in quite so suddenly to try and uh, block the independence process. So you know, nothing has been sort of cast in stone in, in, in that sense. Um, the, the central government of Madrid at the moment is talking a very hard game. It's saying it will block anything um, immediately um, as soon as it can. But uh, that could mean that it starts to appeal against, for example, um, the, the declaration of intent that the Catalans want to, um, to announce after this election um, and, go, and go to the courts then. But that could be a long process. We don't know how long the courts will take to, to make a decision. The Spanish justice system is notoriously slow. So I think it's a case of that that would probably take months. Um, by the time it's, that's resolved, we could have a new government in power. Finally, Guy, if support for independence in Catalonia is around 45%, what are the chances of this pro-independence list of actually winning a majority of the seats in the parliament? Well, I mean, one thing is the, the polls that, that back uh, independence you know, among the man on the street, and another thing are the, the polls that uh, reflect the support for the parties um, that are um, calling for independence in the Catalan parliament. So that's a slightly different dynamic. And I mean, polls I've seen recently show that those are slightly more, uh, or give slightly more reason uh, for optimism to um, the pro-independence camp in that they show that um, the pro-independence platform would seem to have a very slight majority in the Catalan parliament. Um, just, a number, just a handful of seats giving them a majority, which would be enough for them to then push on, according to them, to push on and declare um, that their, their roadmap, um, that their roadmap is underway. Um, but clearly, with such a small, such a slim majority, there's a lot to play for here, and I think the central government realises that. And so it's going to be a very tightly fought election because there's a lot at stake here. Guy Hedgeco in Madrid, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Seventy years ago this week, in the closing days of the Second World War, the United States dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing tens of thousands of people, most of them civilians. The attacks were the only time nuclear weapons have ever been used in war, and they've been widely condemned since then as war crimes, although the United States still defends the decision to drop the bomb. The anniversaries come amid a resurgence of nationalism in Japan and a renewed veneration for Japan's own wartime record. I'm joined now from Tokyo by our correspondent, David McNeil. David, how are these anniversaries being commemorated in Japan? 
Uh, well, they're somber. It's a somber event. Um, they're they're seriously commemorated in the sense that this is the 70th anniversary. So, um, well, every year the Prime Minister uh, this year, Shinzo Abe, goes to give a speech at both places, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, every year they're broadcast live on NHK, which is the Japanese equivalent of RTE. The ceremonies are broadcast live. There's a lot of programs about the war uh, and about, in particular, these um, these bombings on uh, state TV in Japan uh, around this time. And, and Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, the, the daughter of John F. Kennedy, um, will go as she went last year. This is her second visit. And her predecessor, John Roos, uh, was the first ambassador, U.S. ambassador, to go in 2010. Uh, so it, it is a you know it's a big event over here, and it will be marked. Uh, it will be given the seriousness that uh, that it deserves. I think this year. Now the the anniversary is coming amid a whole succession of anniversaries surrounding the events uh, uh, towards the end of the Second World War and Japan's surrender. What is the political atmosphere in which these uh, events are being marked? I think it's safe to say that we've seen a major change under this Prime Minister, Prime Minister um, Shinzo Abe. Um, and uh, what a lot of people um, believe is that uh, he has uh, overseen, as you've just said in your introduction, um, a shift in Japan, a, a very important political shift, I think, um, towards a sort of um, less what what the the rise in Japan caused less less towards um, apology diplomacy away from that kind of idea that Japan needs to apologize for what it did and the one could keep apologizing for what it did and more towards um, uh, uh, the idea that Japan uh, was in some ways uh, a victim of the war but also uh, the idea that Japan uh, hid some uh, Japan is hiding its war crimes that's one of the accusations that people make about what it did during uh, the Second World War. And I think that the most obvious manifestation of that is these um, bills, the security bills that the current prime minister is trying to push through parliament. They're expected to pass in September. And what they will do is they will take the largest step that we've seen in 70 years since Japan introduced its pacifist constitution uh, towards um, um, watering down that, con that pacifism and giving Japan a more militarist stance. So I think that's the context in which all of this is taking place. And a lot of people uh, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima that I've talked to, particularly the survivors, are, are quite angry at that development. They think that Prime Minister Abe is pulling Japan away from the sort of pacifist principles that these cities stand for, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in particular. So who are actually the driving forces behind this shift towards this particular kind of nationalism or nationalist revival? Is it just the Prime Minister? No. I mean, behind the Prime Minister, obviously he's the most important figurehead, but behind him there have always been a large number of people, nationalists, I mean, if you want to give them a name, I suppose, who uh, reject the sort of uh, the, the settlement that was imposed in Japan after the war by the Americans, and and who resent uh, a lot of the things that came out of that, including the constitution, of course, but also the education system, and the sense that Japan was condemned for what it did when, you know, nationalists in Japan would say, well, n not only were the rest of the uh, the big world powers, America in particular, but also many of the European powers. Uh, uh, doing many of the same things we were doing in Asia, uh, but uh, many of them were also committing war crimes. And, of course, the war finished 
the last sort of months of the war finished with these horrendous bombings of uh, most of Japan's cities with huge civilian casualties, up to 400,000, something like that, 400,000 civilians, climaxing with these nuclear bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there's a sense that, um, you know, as as we know in, in Asia, and particularly in Japan, there's a sense of, of history being an unfinished business and, and uh, the past always encroaching on the present. And, and there's lots of examples of that, the latest one being that Japan... Um, uh, at a UN conference earlier this year, uh, uh, asked if world leaders would come to Nagasaki uh, and Hiroshima to sort of pay their respects, and that was blocked by China because China thinks that Japan is playing the, the victim card, you know, that it's constantly sort of saying we were the victims of the war, uh, and China would obviously like Japan to be more uh, straightforward and honest about admitting that it also committed war crimes in Asia. Uh, Japan today is the United States' most important strategic ally in the region. How much residual resentment against the United States can be traced to uh, these uh, attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? It's a really complicated question because, you know, on on the one hand, of course, uh, among the survivors here in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you do hear sort of anger uh, about these bombs and, and the treatment of people after the war. People sort of forget that uh, the, the damage that these bombs did didn't end uh, on August the 6th and August the 9th, 1945, that the radiation uh, killed a lot of people afterwards. And the Americans actually, um, to their shame, I, 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 we have to say, conducted experiments on people here without giving them medical treatment, and all that's well known. But, you know, also Japan has sheltered under the American nuclear umbrella for decades. Japan has a very strong uh, military alliance with America, and that kind of very much complicates things. Uh, and what you what you have all the time is this tension between the sort of, um, you know, the modern realities, I suppose, of where Japan is in the world uh, and uh, the sentiment among people here in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And, and it's reflected in polls. I mean, if you look at um, the surveys that they do uh, among the sort of Hibakusha, the victims of, of the nuclear bombs here in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they generally have uh, a much more anti-war, uh, pacifist stance than the, the, the population as a whole in Japan. And I think that reflects the sort of complicated sentiments that the bomb left behind. You've been talking to a number of survivors in the past few days, including one man who survived both attacks. That's right. I mean, there aren't very many of these people around. There's possibly two or three. They're called Niju Hibakusha, double survivors, uh, uh, incredible stories. I mean, you know, whenever you hear these stories, you are humbled because they are, uh, they are so awful. But uh, this particular man uh, survived as a 14-year-old uh, the, the bombing of Hiroshima, and he was actually initially an, an, a Nagasaki uh, a native, and he, because his house was destroyed, he went back to Nagasaki uh, thinking he would be safe and was bombed again. And, um, you know, like so many of these survivors, they, they hate, they really hate discussing what happened to them, and he was the same, um, and what he said was that um, he, he had um, endured sort of not only the aftermath of the bomb, radiation sickness, uh, very, very common stories we hear, you know, of um, vomiting and diarrhea and then years of health problems. And, and he's actually in hospital now suffering from uh, stomach cancer, which, which may or may not be related to the bomb. Uh, but, but also the discrimination that a lot of these people have suffered because so little was known about 
radiation poisoning and so little was discussed. And again, the Americans for many years didn't really reveal uh, uh, the impact of, of radiation. So these people endured years of discrimination, and it wasn't until 1957 when they were even recognized by the Japanese government for, for special health benefits. So it's a very tragic story in many ways. David McNeil, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>